1 Corinthians chapter 3 is set in the context of Paul's appeal for unity in the church. Some Christians in Corinth are dividing over teachers, church teachers. That's the, that's the theme that occupies the first four chapters of this epistle. There's factionalism in the assembly. There's division in the assembly. Some of them have aligned themselves with Apollos, others with Paul, others with the Apostle Peter, and still others, probably the most sanctimonious of the bunch, exclusively with Jesus. And because the gospel demands it, Paul is concerned to break this party spirit in the church. Today's sermon is set in this broader four-chapter context. Dividing over church teachers, part five, as you can see in your bulletin. And the way things are panning out, I think there's going to be seven parts in all. Uh, Today we begin in verse five of chapter three. uh, But moving from the broader context to the more immediate, let's just do a quick recap of where we've come from before. I've been away for a few weeks. Uh, You'll recall that Paul has berated the Christians, the Corinthian Christians, for being worldly, for being fleshy, for being carnal. On what basis? Why is he accusing them of this? There are three elements. First, Paul charges them with spiritual immaturity. They're not ready for solid food. They can barely digest milk. Very little maturation, spiritual maturation has occurred in the five years since Paul planted this church. Second, the Corinthian believers are characterized by quarreling and jealousy, which Third, has crystallized in the factionalism, the church division, where one follows Paul or Apollos or Peter or some other Christian teacher to the exclusion of the others. So groups within the church have their own personal guru, religious guru. And so Paul laments that his brothers and sisters are not acting like people with the Spirit. Instead, they're acting in a worldly carnal, fleshy way. But it's very important we understand what Paul is not saying, that we see this. He doesn't scold the Corinthians for being indifferent to the claims of Jesus Christ or for living on every front, just like their pagan neighbors, or for being indistinguishable from unbelievers. No, the Corinthians come together as a church. They confess Jesus as Lord. They are extraordinarily endowed with spiritual gifts. Their worldliness consists in this. They're not as mature as they should be by this time. And this immaturity manifests itself in a quarrelsome spirit and and very disturbing factionalism in the church regarding leaders in the church. It's in these regards that the Corinthians are acting like the world, like mere human beings, not like children of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's where we've come from. But this begs the question then, how then should leaders in the church be viewed? Where do Paul and Apollos fit into the the wider scheme of things? And how should you think of your elders, New City? When you look at the portrait of Alex Bloomfield upon your mantle, to where do your thoughts turn? What is Pastor Alex? What is Pastor John? Well, 
That's what 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 are all about. So let's get cracking. Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter in verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? And and by asking the question in in this way, by, by not saying, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? That immediately diffuses uh, the personality cult controversy, doesn't it? It's very deliberate that he's saying that. Uh, And Paul's quite clear. Christian leaders are, in the first place, only servants. Only servants, he writes, through whom you came to believe. And in the context, Paul doesn't mean servants of the church. He means servants of Jesus Christ. Because as we read in verse 5b, it is the Lord who has assigned to each his task. And then they're specifically called servants of Christ in chapter 4, verse 1. We'll look at this next week. But this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. And, And that applies to the pastors of this church, New City, uh, but also to the likes of John Piper, John MacArthur, fill in the blank. Only servants of Christ. So then it follows, if the Lord Jesus has assigned to each servant his task, then it's foolish for the Corinthians, it's foolish for us to rank God's servants according to the role that he has given to them, or to give allegiance to one servant over against another servant. That would be like our brother Phil saying, all puffed up with pride, I follow Queen Elizabeth's scullery maid. To which Kishan responds, oh yeah, well, I follow the servant who cleans her boots. I follow servant John. I follow servant Alex. Or to speak preemptively, Whoever replaces me in this pulpit, 20 years down the road, Lord willing. Sorry, Pastor Bob, I'm a loyal devotee of John Bell. Always have been, always will be. What? No, no. The the men who serve as leaders in this church are here by the specific assignment of the Lord Jesus. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. Fifteen years ago, I did a pastoral internship at a church in Rexdale, a church predominantly West Indian in culture. And let me tell you, and many of you know this, uh, in that culture, pastors practically walk on water. And so so if you're so blessed as to sit at the pastor's own table during a church potluck, because he had his own table, wow, what, what an honor that was. Uh, But a pastor isn't any better than anybody else. He's a sinner, saved by grace, and filled with the Spirit, just like every other Christian. There isn't any qualitative distinction between a pastor and another Christian. Uh, And he certainly, he certainly doesn't have a special anointing, as is believed in certain charismatic traditions. If you believe that, I want to see your New Testament text. But in part, and maybe this is an overreaction, uh, I don't know, but this is why, personally, I poo-poo the use of the title Pastor John in my one-on-one interactions with the members of this church. Uh, Don't misunderstand. Uh, I am one of two pastors 
who serves this church. And it's important that you know that Alex and I are pastors, are the pastors of this local assembly. Uh, There is such an office. Pastor means shepherd. And I think it's good to use the title elder, shepherd, pastor, or elder deliberately in certain contexts, uh, such as when Alex and I are at the front on Sunday morning so that members and visitors know who the pastors of this local assembly are. Uh, Or at a members' meeting, when the elders are presenting motions to the church and and talking about decisions the leaders of this church have made. Uh, There is real, God-granted authority in the office of elder, even honor. Uh, But when we're talking one-on-one, I'd prefer it, I'd prefer it if you just called me John. Or brother, right? If you're in the habit of calling all the other men in the church brother, that's fine too. Uh, I'm not going to insist upon this. I mean, if you don't want to call me John, if your conscience demands that you call me pastor, that's fine. Uh, honor to whom honor is due. I get that. And Canadian culture is a bit on the casual side. But Alex and I are only servants. There isn't a qualitative distinction between us and any other member of this church. Verse 5, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. And now Paul lays out his very famous agricultural analogy, deflecting all glory away from the co-working farmhands toward God himself. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So on a, on a large farm, one person may plant the seed, another may water the seed, but only God can make the seed grow. Therefore, to heap unqualified and exclusive praise on the one who plants the seed, that's just foolish. Likewise, to praise to the skies, the farmhand who deals with the irrigation, who deals with the water. And, and you, we just totally forget about the one who actually planted the seed. Again, that's, that's myopic. It's, 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 narrow, it's too narrow a focus. In any case, it's God alone who makes things grow. Shouldn't he be praised? Yes, all glory to God. But what's happening with the Corinthians? They're getting all puffed up. It's actually an ego trip. Being a follower of one farmhand who is being delegated this task, assigned this task, over against another farmhand who's been delegated another task by the Lord. What in the world is going on? What must they be thinking, believing, to actually kind of view church life in this way? No, no wonder Paul calls them worldly. Mere infants in Christ. Verse 8, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. And they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. So even though the workers are assigned different tasks, they have one purpose. Verse 8, that means no one worker's task has any independent importance. The servant who plants and the servant who waters, they work together, right? with the same purpose, to accomplish what the farmer wants by helping his field produce an abundant harvest. 
In exactly the same way, God's servants work together with the same purpose in the church to accomplish what their master wants by helping the church to grow. So, you see, it's in the bringing together of these tasks, crowned by God himself, who makes things grow, that the harvest is finally brought in. And yes, of course, each worker, verse 8, will be rewarded according to their own labor. Paul doesn't want to deny the importance of individual faithfulness. But in terms of the great task at hand of making things grow, bringing them to harvest, it's important that we get this big picture straight. So now the entire sweep of the analogy, I hope, is clear. The field represents the Corinthians, and it belongs to God. Verse 9, you are God's field. The workers in the field are people like Paul and Apollos, and they belong to God too. We are co-workers in God's service, verse 9. God owns the field. God owns the workers. God assigns the workers their task, and God alone makes the seed grow. But before pressing on, we need to be certain that two points here are absolutely crystal clear. Uh, They need to be crystal clear in our own mind, New City, because these are true Two truths that the Corinthians are ignoring. The first is this. You can see this in your big, your big picture in the bulletin. Christian leaders are only servants of Christ and are not to be accorded allegiance that is reserved for God alone. It's not that gratitude to Paul or Apollos or some other uh, leader, teacher in the church is inappropriate. Uh, I would ask, loved ones, have you been blessed by a certain pastor's ministry? I, I trust you have. Praise God for it. Uh, well, why not tell that pastor that God has used him to bless you, giving all praise to God? Uh, I'm 44 now. The Lord saved me when I was 21. I was baptized when I was 22. For some unaccountable reason, I waited a year to do it. Uh, but then I started attending a Reformed Baptist church around that same time. Well, 11 years ago, I wrote an email to the former associate pastor of that church, a man who's since become a chaplain in the Canadian Navy. Uh, But this was the pastor, this was the church of my early formative Christian years. So I wrote him an email, and in part I said this, I've been pastoring a work in downtown Toronto for the past year and a half called New City Baptist Church. The Lord has been very good to us, And we are excited to see his hand of blessing. It's interesting for me to see as I'm getting older and preaching regularly. And by this time I had preached all of 70 sermons, I think. (laughs) It's interesting for me to see as I'm getting older and preaching regularly just how much impact your preaching and teaching ministry has had on me. I see a lot of you in me. I'm not sure that's something you want to be taking any credit for, but there it is all the same. Thank you for your faithfulness, brother. Thank you for lending me your commentaries and for being patient with me as I asked you to order me Christian books on your visa card (laughs) and counseled me on my craziness about being signed to a record label. Thank you for having coffee with me and talking to me and lending me books like John Owen's The Death of Death, A.W. Pink's Sovereignty of God, Bruce Metzger's The Text of the New Testament, and Boss's Biblical Theology. Thank you for your faithful teaching on the book of Daniel the minor prophets, the parables of Jesus, 1 Corinthians, and going through Ted Tripp's video series on shepherding a child's heart. Thank you for teaching the word in a way that brought the Bible to life for me as you forced me to use my mind in the study of the scriptures. 
That's just some of what I wrote to him. And, and to be clear, this letter was written to the associate pastor, not the senior pastor. And that's, that's fine. It, it's natural. It's only natural that the personalities of some teachers will seem more appealing or that some will strike us as better communicators. Uh, but if they're qualified elders, if they're faithfully serving God as he is assigned, then the church should joyfully follow all of them without quarreling over who is best. It's not that special gratitude for a specific farmhand is inappropriate, but what Paul finds inexcusable is the kind of fawning and defensive attachment to one particular leader that results in one-upmanship and quarreling and jealousy. This, this, this whole guru mentality and actually identifying, having our own self-identification with that church leader, with that church teacher, is a matter of pride. It, it makes way too much of one person. It, it verges on assigning that person godlike status. Church teachers are merely God's servants. That's all. So thank God for them. They're all God's gift to us. But what's important is that God has given them to the church, and God is the one who makes the church grow. So let's benefit, then, from the strength of multiple church teachers without fixating on just one. That's folly. And it betrays a deep, deep ignorance of the nature of Christian leadership in a local church and of the corporate and mutually supportive ways in which Christian leaders complement one another, one another's work under God in the local church. This also means that Christian leaders should refrain from presenting themselves as if they have a corner on the truth, uh, or all the gifts are deposited in me, <laughs> or exclusive authority or insight. Uh, now, now, there's a lesson, I think, that pastors in the church need to learn in this time of COVID-19 and Delta variants and masks and vaccine passports. Pastors need to take care not to speak outside their God-given jurisdiction. You've heard me talk about this before. I'm going to hammer it one more time. Uh, Brother Alex isn't here today. He's on vacation for the long weekend. So, you're going to, Alex, you're going to hear me through the podcast. But, brother, we need to go low. We need to be humble. In our circles, at least, I don't know of a single pastor who is also an epidemiologist or a virologist. Uh, yes, we can all read articles and draw our own conclusions, but every pastor is a layman on this very difficult issue that's presenting the church today. Plus, more than a question of competence, frankly, is the question of authority. As pastors, we're authorized by God to read, interpret, and apply the biblical text to God's people. We're not authorized to give out medical advice. But judging from what I've seen and heard from certain pastors on social media, that's not understood. I, I, I saw a great um, Hide the Pain Herald. Are you familiar with that meme, Hide the Pain Herald? After church, you can look them up. I see them everywhere. <laughs> don't tell me that the, the 44-year-old is more hip than everyone else. I don't know. but um, I saw a great Hide the Pain Herald meme a couple of weeks ago, the one where he's sitting at his computer with a mug of coffee in his hand. It's, the screen is split into two. And it reads, I'm tired of being a specialist in infectious diseases and virology. Today, I decided to become an expert on Afghanistan. <laughs> I'll just say this. Pastor, Alex, stay in your lane. Don't pontificate publicly on stuff you really know next to nothing about. The Bible is clear. 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Christian leaders should refrain from presenting themselves as if they had the corner on the truth or all of the gifts or exclusive authority or insight. No, we're all only servants. We're all co-workers. We all belong to God. The second detail from this farm analogy that needs to be crystal clear before we move on is that the entire thrust of the argument depends on a distinction between the Corinthian believers and the Christian workers, such as Paul and Apollos and Peter. He is making that distinction here. Uh, That's made clear not only from the context in which groups of Christians are, are following, trying to align themselves with a specific leader in the church, but from the structure of the analogy. So look at chapter 3, verse 9. We, that is Paul, Apollos, and in principle other workers, are God's co-workers. You are God's field. He's making a distinction. Now, in other contexts, of course, Paul can talk of all Christians as serving the Lord, as being his servants. Uh, We're all a body. He'll come to that later on. Uh, But in this context, he is making a distinction. And this distinction carries over into the next metaphor, the building metaphor. So, the end of verse 9 is transitional. You are God's field, Paul writes. Then that brings the agricultural analogy to a close. And then he adds, you are God's building. So, now we move from the farm to the construction site. Look at verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder... And someone else is building on it. By laying the foundation he did, the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul was truly a wise master craftsman, a wise builder. So I want us to form a picture in our minds right now, okay? The the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the foundation. Paul's already laid that substructure. In Corinth, and since his departure from this building project, others have come in and built on this foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Other workers are building a superstructure on top of that foundation, okay? But what does he say? But each one should build with care. That means laser builders are responsible to choose with care the material that they put into the building, what they build the superstructure with. Verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be reeled with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. I'd be so bold to say is I think probably most Christians coming to this text are like, I I don't understand what was just being said there. Um, 
once again, and this is everything, beloved, Paul is making a distinction between ordinary believers, quote-unquote, and church leaders. Here, in this construction metaphor, the believers are God's building, and the leaders are the builders. Uh, Just as in the previous metaphor, the field is the church, and the farmhands are the church leaders. So the general point of this analogy, especially the first part of it, is exactly the same as the farm metaphor. Uh, But we need to remember what a slow process building a great edifice was back in these days before power equipment. So cathedrals in Europe, I mean, they could take four or 500 years to complete. Uh, In Paul's day, a temple, which is a much more modest undertaking, sometimes building a temple took decades. So one builder may lay the foundation, but others would complete various phases of the building project and then would move on or they'd retire or they'd die uh, while others took their place. So the lesson's clear. Paul laid the foundation of Jesus and him crucified and others have built on his work. And just like the field analogy, it's the project as a whole that's important. So in the same way, it's foolish to focus all praise on just one of the builders who has contributed to this overall project. After all, the builders have all shared a common vision. They have a common purpose, right? But there's something about this metaphor, the construction analogy, that differentiates it from the previous one. There is a heavy heavy emphasis placed on the accountability of the builders. God judges the quality of the work of each builder. And Paul no sooner gets going than he gives a warning. Look at verse 10 again. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else, some other teacher, is building on it. But each one, each teacher, should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, or more fully, Jesus Christ and him crucified, to use the expression of chapter 2, verse 2. If anyone tries to lay down some other foundation, then it must be some other building entirely. Uh, It's certainly not the church that's going to arise on any competing foundation if it's not Jesus Christ and him crucified. But, and here's the main thing, okay, even where... The foundation is Jesus and him crucified. There's still the danger of later shoddy workmanship and inferior materials. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using, and note there are two types of building material here, the sort that can withstand fire, so gold, silver, costly stones, and the sort that cannot, wood, hay, or straw. If anyone builds, verse 12, on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day of the Lord will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work, each builder's work. Paul distinguishes between two kinds of building material two kinds of building materials that workers coming after him may use, all right? There's the kind that cannot withstand the fire, uh, the fire that will test the quality of each person's work on the day of the Lord when each builder's work will be shown for what it is, verse 13. 
That's one. And then there's the kind that survives that fire, that testing. Fire not only reveals, it tests. The fire distinguishes good and bad. This fire is not purgatory. I mention that because this is the New Testament text to which Rome appeals for that false teaching. But nothing here is said about tormenting the builders and purging them in the flames. Rather, it's the quality of their work that's revealed by the fire. The fire will test the quality of each builder's work. The fire will judge the builder's workmanship to see whether it has been made of quality material. And when that happens is on the day of the Lord the time of final sifting. Now, notice Paul's language. Fire, the day of the Lord. Testing, surviving the fire. The background to all of this is the final judgment. Now, at first glance, we might think that gold, silver, and costly stones are very strange building materials, but Paul chooses it deliberately. Um, these are the precious stones that were featured so prominently in Solomon's temple. And as Paul develops his analogy, the building that's going up here, that's under construction, is nothing less than God's temple. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? The church is the new temple. It's the last times, eschatological temple. And that's an image the apostle Peter picks, on, picks up on as well. If you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. This is going to lend clarity to what we're looking at here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, that is to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Or if you're using the NIV, you can look at the footnote, or into a temple of the Spirit. The apostle Paul, or Peter, is thinking of a spiritual temple. That This isn't a building of, of granite or stone he's talking about here. Uh, and in this spiritual temple, Jesus is the massive cornerstone. The cornerstone laid out the lines of the entire building in the ancient world. It was the shaper of the entire building. It constrained the shape of the entire building. And the Apostle Peter calls Jesus a living stone because he's been raised from death. Jesus is alive, and he shapes this temple exactly by who he is. He constrains the entire construction. But Peter calls Christians living stones as well in verse 5. That means God's people, as individuals, we're this eschatological temple's building materials. Each stone in this spiritual house, this spiritual temple, is a Christian. Each stone is a sinner who hears the preaching of the gospel and who, by God's enabling grace, repents, believes the gospel, is filled with the Spirit, and is baptized. And so each living stone is built up into what Peter calls a spiritual house, a temple of the Spirit. Or as the inimitable Charles Spurgeon puts it, the living stones of the heavenly temple are perfectly joined together with the vermilion cement of Christ's blood. I love that. The vermilion cement of Christ's blood. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but you can probably see where this is going. If a builder's work is burned up, verse 15, the builder will suffer loss, 
but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So please note that, okay? It's the church builder who barely escapes the flame, not the ordinary church folk themselves. So picture someone running out of a building that's engulfed in fire, engulfed in flames. Or check that. Picture a pastor. Picture one of your pastors running out of a burning building. And it's the church membership that's engulfed in flames. Those individual stones, as Peter calls them. As it turns out, those stones were made of hay and straw and wood, not gold, silver, and costly stones. The pastors, preachers, elders, leaders, they escape. Pastor John, Pastor Alex, we escape. We're doing fine, but how much of the building on which we've been working survives the flames? How many professing believers? Hear this, brothers and sisters. The warning is that even ostensibly faithful and fruitful Christian leaders may be building the church with such poor materials, that is, with spurious converts, that they have nothing to show for their work on the last day. That's what Paul is talking about. What the church needs to be guarding is a regenerate church membership. Have you ever heard that expression? A regenerate church membership. A born-again church membership. Historically, this doctrine is meant to correct the error of pedo-baptism. That is, the baptism of infants. Infants baptized apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ, and then bringing those unbelieving children of believing parents into the covenant community of the church. No, no, no. The church is composed of regenerate believers, those with the Spirit. The new covenant community is a community of the redeemed. It's a community of the believing and the repenting. Which is why, New City, the elders of this church take such care with matters such as baptism, church membership, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. None of our polity on those fronts is unthinking, uncritical, random religious tradition. Your elders have set out a church polity, what we believe to be a biblical polity, to do all that we can as a church to ensure a regenerate church membership. God forbid if we should build up New City with bricks of straw and wood and hay rather than gold and precious, costly stones. Remember the Spurgeon quote. The living stones of the heavenly temple are perfectly joined together with the vermilion cement of Christ's blood. Pastor Alex and I don't care about numbers, so-called numerical success, so much as true conversions, not spurious conversions. Which is why, for instance, we're cautious about baptism. Baptisms at New City take time. We don't baptize people spontaneously five seconds after they make a profession of faith in Jesus. And each baptism involves the entire church. Baptism is the initiation rite into the Christian church. It's the initial sign 
of belonging to the people of God, those whose sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ through faith alone. Participating in the Lord's Supper is the continuing sign of belonging to the people of God, but baptism is the initiation rite. And baptism means something. Baptism is important precisely because it is tied to the gospel. It's connected to belief in Jesus Christ and what God has accomplished for his people through Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. It's a picture of the sinner's union with Jesus, of passing through the waters of of God's judgment and of the washing away of sin, all because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the uniform pattern, not only in Acts, but in throughout the whole New Testament, is that the proper subject of baptism is always, always a believer. Which means as churches weigh the two competing priorities of baptizing all believers without carelessly baptizing unbelievers, a posture of caution is warranted. That's the balance. Right? Which is why at New City, we connect baptism with church membership. The congregation of New City, as every local church, has been given the keys of the kingdom, which means the members are responsible under the teaching and guidance of the elders to determine the who and the what of the gospel. Is that a good gospel confession? profession? Is that a good gospel professor? Which is why at New City, the whole church votes on each prospective member. As a church, a whole body, we say, you look like a Christian to us. Because as far as we can, as far as we're able, we desire to have and to keep a regenerate church membership. What is church membership? Simply put, church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian, characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship, and the Christian submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Several elements are present. A church body formally affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism as credible. The church promises to give oversight to that individual's discipleship, and the individual formally submits his or her discipleship to the service and authority of this body and its leaders which is also why we practice close communion at New City. Not closed, but close. Closed communion is when a local church allows only the members of their local church to participate in that ordinance. Open communion is when any professing Christian can participate. But close communion is when a church insists you be a baptized member of some gospel-believing local church in order to participate. In some cases, they require proof for this, uh, but in most, they make it just a matter of conscience. New City practices close communion, which is why we always say at each celebration of the Lord's Supper, if you are a baptized member of a gospel-believing church, we invite you to join with us in this meal. This, too, is an essential matter of church life. It's all part of keeping the membership regenerate. Because from the church's perspective, the Bible gives local churches authority to bring members in and to see them out. They've been given the keys. Matthew 18, 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Hear this. The church 
exercises this authority by bringing people into membership through baptism, by seeing them out through excommunication when necessary, and by affirming them as believers on an ongoing basis through the Lord's Supper. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Alex, brother, it's possible to build the church, quote-unquote, with such shoddy materials that at the last day we have nothing to show for our labor. That nightmare scenario Paul presents of a pastor running out of his burning church. Sure, we're saved, but the church burns. God forbid. We must always be aware that people may physically gather with a church and feel helped. They may join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. And if the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. That's not to say that managerial skills aren't important or unnecessary or that basic people skills are optional, but the fundamental non-negotiable without which the church is no longer the church is the gospel, God's folly, God's foolishness, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brother Alex, I speak to you again. If we, the pastors of this church, see this clearly, then many other things will fall into place. We will perceive that it's God's revelation to us of his son that is of paramount importance. Recognizing the need for the Spirit of God to illumine the minds of men and women who otherwise will not grasp the gospel, we will emphasize prayer. We will live and serve in the light of the final judgment, for we must give an account for our ministry. And so we will remain utterly committed to the centrality of the cross, not just a vague on, on, on a vague theoretical levels, but actually in all of our strategy, in all of our practical decisions, in our church polity. Pastor Alex, a faithful servant keeps the main thing, a crucified Messiah, the main thing. But be encouraged, brother. The prospects before the builders of the church are not merely negative. There is an alternative. Look at verse 14. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Alex, you and I are no more than under-shepherds. And one day we will both give an account to the chief shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, the shepherd who has entrusted his lambs into our care. And he alone rewards his staff. And if we bear the burden of faithfully shepherding God's flock, willingly, eagerly, and as role models of humility, brother, then we will receive the unfading crown of glory when Christ is revealed in glory on that final day. New City, with this we're going to close, but look at the, the big picture in your bulletins one more time. Christian leaders 
are only servants of Christ and are not to be accorded allegiance reserved for God alone. God cares about his church and he holds its leaders accountable for how they build it. Amen.